the person who's struggling, the person like myself who wants more out of life. You know, the 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 parents in their midlife as their kids graduate high school and move on. And it's like, well, we don't even know who we are anymore. Our identity is who this has been our kids for so many years. It's helping people through that transition and not accepting that this is the way it is. You could now become a new version of yourself, a new creation, a new invention, however you want to describe it. As long as you're breathing, there's still possibility. This is Going Boldly, the podcast. Here's your host, Russ the Big Guy. Hi, it is Russ the Big Guy. I'm a lifelong entrepreneur who is very familiar with the struggles and successes related to running a business. I know it is definitely worth the struggle. The freedom and unlimited potential keep me moving forward, fueled by my why. Aligned with that is my desire to share with you, the entrepreneur and aspiring business owner, entertainment, information, inspiration, and even transformation into an even more amazing entrepreneur and human. To those ends, please enjoy this episode of Going Boldly. All right, here we are in the recording studio up in the penthouse suite on Washington Ave in the beautiful town of Endicott. And uh, it's my privilege to have an interesting guest today. He has a, a pretty interesting story, quite the journey. I think you're going to be inspired too. So especially if you're someone who's maybe, uh, maybe been stuck or is feeling stuck or perhaps not sure that what you're doing is uh, what you need to be uh, doing with your life. Sometimes we get in that, you know, we're waist deep in something before we realize that maybe uh, maybe we should be doing something differently. It's my privilege <laughs> to introduce Marty Noki. Hey, Marty. How are you today? I'm awesome. Thank you. Hey, appreciate you doing this with us today. I have to tell you that if I knew that it was going to be done in your penthouse, I would have definitely been done the two-hour drive up to New York. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, when we were talking, I just assumed that you wouldn't want to make the drive, but I... Um, <laughs> I should have uh, made it very clear that anyone is invited to come here. I appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Give me an idea of like what's happening with you. I know that you are the founder of the Emerging Life Project, and right, I, I think that uh, I think that your your journey is important for anybody else who might be struggling with theirs. Right? As a young man, you joined the priesthood. Yep, in the Catholic Church. Yeah, is that where our, where your story might start, or or do we need to know more about you before that. Oh yeah, I mean, I guess it starts wherever it starts. So I, I, you know, I would add two things: the, the person who hasn't come to the realization yet. Yeah. Uh, and, then I, and then I'll tell my story. But um, I remember my coach telling the coach I work with, telling me, you know, I, I could stand here and tell you that there's a plane flying right into your face, but until you see that plane, you're not getting out of the way. <laughs> And I, I think that's true for most of us. Until we can really see what's going on, it's hard to admit that we need to change in some ways. Of course. The other one, the other one was about being um, waist deep in something before you realize you're maybe you're in the wrong place. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't know if I told you the story. I may have about where I, when I almost died whitewater rafting. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I go back to that image. It was much more than being waist deep. I mean, I was fully immersed in water, feeling like I was drowning. It, and I think it's similar to the plane metaphor that people aren't going to change until they, they're they in that point of drowning. Uh, because I, I think that's just how we are as human beings. We don't like to change until we're really pushed to the edge to change. So that was the defining moment that, uh, that you know, for you. At what age were you when that happened? 
Uh, the rafting accident? Yeah. Uh, let's see. I would have been early 30s. So I, I entered seminary at 25. It was my um, last year. Of, it would have been 2003 when that accident happened. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 32, I guess, 33 at, at that point. All right. So you so you were already ordained a priest? I was ordained a deacon. I would a be deacon. ordained a priest the following June. I see. Yeah. And, I mean, and you were living that life, doing what you thought you were supposed to be doing. You were providing service to the community. So you had the rafting accident, and you were trapped underneath the raft. Yeah, yeah. Just so people have an understanding, if you've never gone whitewater rafting. Yeah, what happened it, exactly? It's, it's not that uncommon to fall out of the raft when you're whitewater rafting. Uh, that's a pretty common experience, and they tell you what to do. Make sure you don't try to stand up, and all those you go with the flow of the water. Yeah. So I knew I knew all those things. I mean, I had done whitewater rafting before, so I, I knew what to expect if I fell out, but. Uh, there was no instruction if you get caught under the, under the raft. Um, so for me, it was unique in that sense that um, I still remember it was the guy. In, it was the very first rapid that we had gone through. So we had just gotten on the river. The guy in front of me had lost his balance, hit me with his oar as he was falling out. And so I fell out and somehow landed under the raft. I still don't know how that happened, how I got trapped under the raft at that point. Um, but I did. Of course, the immediate reaction anyone would do is you try to lift lift it off of you if you feel that weight on you. And there were, what, about seven, eight guys on that raft. So there was no way I was going to lift them off. And uh, I, I just kind of, I blacked out at that point. And somehow that kept me alive, was blacking out, um, not trying to control it. And uh, I surfaced. But the, I mean, the most challenging piece of it is you can't get off. You have to get back on the raft and keep going. So we still had seven miles of river to travel after this experience of almost drowning. And so every time I got to the next rapid, I would fall into the raft. Like I, I already had in my head, like if I fall into the water, that's it. I'm done. I'm dead. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was complete fear and terror at that point that I, I, my life was over. So yeah, that that's kind of how it unfolded. And the hard part really was getting back in and going seven miles down the river after that one experience. Well, I hadn't heard this part. And so I hadn't even thought about this, but so just before you blacked out, do you remember what you were thinking? <laughs> um, you know, it, it feels like minutes yeah. when you're in that situation, but it's really just seconds as it all unfolds. Yeah. And I just kind of, I had that experience where my life just kind of flashed before me. And that's the last thing I remember. The, the, the next thing I remember is vaguely hearing the people on the raft yelling my name or, or yelling, there he is. Like I could, I could remember hearing that even though I wasn't fully with it at the moment. And when I finally um, emerged from the water, there was uh, the person in the kayak who goes along with you was there sitting, waiting to pull me back in. So they literally had to drag you back into the raft. Yeah. Yep. When your life was going before your eyes, which we've heard this before. Were you, were you consciously thinking this is it? I'm done. I'm dead. Or, oh, yeah. or yeah. okay, yeah. you were. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, then, I thought it was you know, and then all those <laughs> nanoseconds, and then your life flashes before your eyes. What, what did you see? And, and did you, um, did you have a reaction to what you were seeing, or was it just a passive, you know, observer of it? Passive. I mean, it happened so quickly. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if I could tell you specifically, other than, like, just people 
obliged before me. I, like, I'm, I'm not going to have the opportunity to say goodbye to any of these people because this is it. It's done. It's over. So see- it was more the, the people of my life that I saw. Do you see their faces or? Yes. Oh. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And, okay. and then, and then eight months later I was ordained a priest. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, I thought this was a, a, a major turning point for you in your life, but you continued on the same path. Yeah. So, what, so um, how does that shake out? Did it take you that long to realize, or did you reflect back on the rafting incident or how, how did that work? So the way it panned out and I'll, I'll, I'll try to give it kind of a short form form of how I, how I have seen it unfold. Yeah. Um, over the course of those eight months, I think it's eight months, October to June before I got ordained, I felt like I was sleepwalking through life in many ways. It was very hard for me to focus and do anything. And I, at that point, and I think anyone that's had that experience, that that near-death experience, um, probably would understand it better is you, you, you don't quite know where you are or what you're doing in those moments because it just kind of feels, hey, everything kind of feels hazy as you're going through it. But I know, and I'm pretty sure I had told you this when we spoke the other day that it was about a month out from being ordained. And I had met with my spiritual director at Loyola university in Baltimore. And I, I mean, I'll never sit there. I'll never forget sitting there with him and him saying to me, do you really think you should be doing this? And I mean, I could still hear his voice telling me those words saying that to me. And when you're in that that point where you feel like you're drowning and you can't do anything else but just kind of hold your head up above water enough to breathe, yeah, it's very hard to change course. And I felt, I felt I had to continue to go forward because if I if I change this one thing, that it everything's just going to fall apart on me. Was that the best choice? No, no, I can't. I couldn't say that at the moment. I could say that now, you know, 15, 20 years later. But when you're in the moment, all you, all you can do is make the choice you make. Yeah. So you were in a haze. You went ahead with what you had been doing, but you, yeah. um, there must have been a reason why your spiritual um, guide uh, asked you that, <laughs> that question. <laughs> yeah. Did he or she see something that you didn't? Yeah, or I didn't want to see after an experience like that, you start questioning everything. You start questioning your own life. You start questioning what matters. You start questioning all those things. And so I was in this serious questioning and doubting mode when I had met with him at that point that I, I couldn't make a choice freely at that point. Um, so, yeah, I think he had legitimate reason to ask the question. I remember getting offended by the question which is a good indicator that, <laughs> that the question hit a nerve. Yeah. But I went through it anyway. I mean, I, I could tell you, even after I was ordained, and I continued with him I, because I he was probably one of the best spiritual directors I've ever had. It wasn't in, so when I got to around the one-year anniversary of the, the rafting accident, so October of um, 2004 then at that point, yeah. So that, what is um, it? Oh, you've been a, you've been a priest for four months then at that point? Yes. Since June at that point. Okay. As I approached the anniversary. So probably like late September. Or so I started not being able to sleep. I was having um, nightmares of drowning. All this stuff was kind of coming up as I was sleeping and I got sick, like right around the anniversary. I got sick. I ended up with Bell's palsy. I mean, you could look it up if you're not sure what that is. But I ended up having to take off about a month at that point. 
and still not being able to make the connection as to what was going on, even though I was having those nightmares. It wasn't until that following January, January of uh, 2005 then, that uh, I, I was literally sitting in a movie theater watching Phantom of the Opera, and I could I could still see it today. And I uh, there's a scene in the movie where there where the guy is submerged in water, and I remember having an anxiety attack sitting in the movie theater, and I was like, oh, that's the problem. <laughs> like, why didn't I think of that sooner? And uh, then finally was able to get help at least to to deal with the post traumatic stress of the experience. Yeah, that was only really one of the issues though, because. You had shared with me earlier that there was a major life change coming up for you. Besides leaving the priesthood, which is what you did, you came to a realization for you personally. And then and then, how does that relate to your trajectory going forward in terms of position of service to other humans? There's, a, bu- there's a bunch of stuff going on there. You've got, uh, you've got a major uh, personal realization. You have the um, the post-traumatic stress disorder. And so you have to move forward somehow, right? Yeah. So, and this is where I'll kind of fast forward for you, the story, because I, I mean, I get ordained, I go through all that. I get the help for post-traumatic stress, but I, for 15 years, and I was living with this constant angst within myself that something wasn't right, that I, I, I kept feeling like I had to get back to where I was before the rafting accident. Why? I don't know why I told myself that. I have no idea. But that's what I thought. I felt like that was I was in my healthiest place at that point. And so six months before I finally left as a priest, so this is we're talking June 2018, I started to make a concerted effort of taking better care of myself, making better choices for myself, things that were healthy for me. And as the time went on, ironically, around what would have been the anniversary, the October that year, I finally got to a healthier weight. I, I, I was taking care of myself, but I also felt like I was starting to just kind of tear apart inside. Mm-hmm. I question what I was doing and wondering whether this is really the right path for me. Now, I mean, I hold on for months at that point from October until January before I finally leave. But in many ways, I felt I had to go. It was like returning to the experience of the rafting accident. I had dealt with it on that post-traumatic stress level but the image of feeling trapped and submerged and cornered and closeted and all those other images that we could use to describe it yeah. weren't dealt with in light of everything that had transpired in my life. And, and I think we could only deal with those things as our life transpires in different ways. And so all that stuff really began to surface for me at that point to the point where uh, December around Christmas of 18, so now a month before I leave, um, like my family and my friends even began to question whether there was something wrong with me, whether I was sick. And, that, and no one said anything. Of course, no one tells you, you look like crap and what's wrong with you. I mean, they thought I had cancer. They thought I was sick. And it wasn't any of that stuff. I, just, I, I felt so empty inside yeah. and didn't, didn't know what to do with that emptiness that uh, by January, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I felt like I was just functioning. I It was regrets of failed relationships, things I didn't do in my life that I would have liked to have done. I felt trapped in this life. 
And uh, so my, I mean, the original plan was not to just leave, leave and be gone forever. I was going to leave for a month, but as time passed, I recognized it's just not my life to live. It, It was unhealthy. It was doing, it was, I describe it and I know it's a harsh image, but I think it works is it, it felt like I was doing violence against my own soul, staying in that life. Yeah. But was it because of your realization of your sexuality or was it because you lost faith? Did you find that? Tell me more about how all that stuff shook out for you. I think all of that plays a factor into it. I still think, and even when I work with people now and, and kind of help them emerge into their own lives, there's a recognition that we really have two questions in life that we have to ask ourselves. One is, who am I? Yeah. The second one is, how am I going to contribute to this world? Which we kind of water down to, what am I going to do with my life? And I, we have a tendency to do them backwards. We, we think if we find what we, what we want to do, that somehow that will give us the identity that we want or we believe we are. Uh, and I would say I was no different in that regard. So I, I try to answer by doing rather than answering the deeper question of who I am. I mean, I could sit here now and say for those 15 years, it, it was constant, like bobbing heads against this institution that I wanted the institution to change when in reality, it was me that needed to change. I needed to get out of there um, because it was a constant conflict. It, it I felt it was rarely about people and, and what's good for people. It, it's always about the institution first, which I think many institutions struggle with at this point, and, and companies for that matter. They lose sight of, of people. And I would say the church was no different. It, it wasn't about people. It was, it was about saving an institution. That's not who I am. That's not where I am. And for me, it was always about the people first and helping people discover themselves and not settle in life. It got to a point where I felt like I was living a lie and yeah. I was living a lie. Yeah. For some people, it, it comes in the form of a midlife crisis. And I was, I guess I was midlife and it was a crisis of some, of some sort. I don't think it was a crisis of faith. I don't think it's ever been a crisis of faith for me because that is the one thing that I've always been able to hang on to. I think when I had met with the bishop, what, four months after I left, then that was the last time I ever spoke to him in all this time. He obviously asked the question about faith. He asked the question about God. And my response was, I've learned more about faith and trust in leaving than I ever did by staying. Wow. What was, what was his response to that? He, he didn't have a response. If you're that immersed in that that culture and that environment, it is very hard to even understand what that means. Do you think that in times of crisis like we're having uh, or uh, times of a personal crisis or a personal uh, challenging event of some sort, do you think that that normally would strengthen someone's faith or send them asking more questions or would it crush their yeah. faith? Or I mean, what, what what's your observation on all that? In my experience, it typically leads to more questions, yeah. more than crush. Yeah, and I, we we don't handle questioning well because that institute, and I, it's not just the Catholic Church. I think religion in the United States in general is very much about what's known and certainties, and yet faith is just the opposite. It it isn't about either of those things, for that matter. Um, it's very much about the unknown and the uncertainties, and, and what do you do with that? And if it's if it's all built on what you know, what's known, and what's certain, it's going to fall apart at some point. 
because at some point it's going to be challenged as we as it is during the pandemic and you're either going to hunker down and try to control this even more or you're going to let it go and change in a way that makes it better and unfortunately it's been about controlling and hunkering down and let's hold on to what we have no that that was me falling into the raft over and over again that that's fear yeah it's unfortunate when individuals make their choices based on fear yes right because based on fear is kind of like you're you're making assumptions on the future based on what happened in the past correct and any <laughs> you know any forward thinking uh person uh who is a high achiever uh certainly understands that you can't live that way Yep. And I, and that, that was the conflict I often found myself within the institution because of, it's not about, it wasn't about forward thinking at all. It was all about living in the past. It is this sense of fear. Yeah. And I, and I honestly, and I want everyone to succeed. I would like the church to succeed. I, I'm just not, I, I naturally want people to succeed. And I thought like maybe the pandemic will finally wake this, wake some of these institutions up and say, you know what, it, what we're doing is not working. And that's not been the case at all. <laughs> well, I, it may be not with uh, religion, but certainly education um, is yeah, being yeah. shaken up, and there are and and individuals in general. Yeah, I just see, I see a lot of that. I see different uh, other organizations. So, uh, like you said, the organized religions are so entrenched that, uh, and uh, it's interesting. You know, there's just so many so many examples of just awful things that are done to people and like even the idea of um, LGBTQ people, for example, with the Catholic church, I mean, uh, they've gotten to the point where they want where they're tolerant, but they're not accepting. And there's a huge (laughs) difference. There's a huge difference between tolerance and acceptance. Absolutely. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I, I mean, I, you can go look at statistics of how many priests are gay. I mean, the, the number is outrageously high. Um, so I'm not. I'm, it, it just baffles me. And the the other, and I mean, I taught for twelve years, and I I taught the core the core of of theology and our understanding of this God is you're born in the image and likeness. Like that's it. It comes down to that very core principle. And how does that jive with all this nonsense that we focus on that the church focuses on? when like can you go back to the core principle and if it's not in alignment with the core principle maybe something needs to change yeah shouldn't the core principle be love yeah i mean really all the rest of the stuff is all man-made yeah it's been a way to create the institution over two thousand years yeah and it's not that it's all bad i mean there's some value in a lot of it but of course i think there was always a drive to move forward i didn't know how to move forward um, and, and again, I'm looking back now on this experience. Sure. Because I, what eventually catapulted me out was there was always that drive in me saying, there's got to be more, there's got to be more, there's got to be more to my life over and over again after that accident. I thought I would have you talk about a couple things that you brought forward with you, right? You were teaching in the past. You um, you were counseling people in the past. You're the founder of the Emerging Life Project. So what are some of the things that you found incredibly rewarding? And I'm assuming that you brought a lot of those with you to move forward. Yeah, I spent a good deal of my time working with high school and college students, which I loved. If I could say that there was anything 
that kept me going for 15 years, it was that. I, I mean, I taught 12 of the 15 years, uh, an introductory, introductory theology class and retreat work and, and working again with high school and college students. That That is really what kept me going because there was such a desire in them to be authentic and to be themselves. And yet they're, they're constantly butting up against expectations of school, expectations of their parents, expectations of society, expectations of one another. And when they would, would come to me, especially doing retreat, where I did retreat work for four years full time, some of them would just break down. And I still think I learned how to be a good priest as I went through it, working with high school students and hearing confessions of high school students, because my heart just broke for so many of them. I and mean, I could still think of stories that they told me. You know, we're talking 16, 17, 18 years old, and the amount of pain that they carry with them for one reason or another. Uh, to the, you know, I still remember one guy telling me how he, he lived his life as if his parents weren't there. They were going through a divorce. And of course, he's caught in the middle of all of this. Um, people who are gay, people who are who have this expectation that they have to be something that they don't want to be. It, my heart just broke for them and loved it tremendously. And I think it helped me to become the person I am today in many ways. I, I'm grateful for those experiences. I mean, I was challenging them in the same way I'm, I'm trying to challenge myself grow now. Because my mantra was always, don't settle for anything less. And it's exactly what I was doing. And now I'm trying, I, I am working at not doing that myself. And so it, those people skills and the ability to empathize and the, the ability to have compassion and to listen, to listen with an open heart are, are skills. I, I are very much a part of who I am anyway. I'm a deep feeler to begin with and an empathizer. But I credit those situations for really helping to mold them and, and reinforce uh, that part of myself that helps people in their struggles and their transitions and their what they're dealing with in their lives. And so that's part I, of... I don't remember fully what the question was, but the, well, there's no. an answer. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. Yeah. So you're you, I assume that you are taking uh, that love of helping people and those skills that you developed and refined over all those years... I'm sure you didn't walk in the very first day of teaching and, you know, be uh, 100% competent, being able to connect with uh, with youth. And, uh, of course, you were younger then, but you were a little closer to the age. But still, like you're the authority figure, like you're the person who's supposed to be and yep. know everything. And uh, we all know that we don't, especially, especially right. in the beginning. So now you have these skills. You're taking them forward. And are these part of your emerging life project? Yeah, and I, I will add one thing. The one thing I was confident about going in as a teacher was – I may have not been confident about the material entirely, even though I studied theology for so many years. I didn't necessarily know how to teach it. The one thing I was confident about was my belief, because I had been trained as a teacher to begin with. I mean, that's what I originally went to college for ah. when I got out of high school. And so I've always had a love to learn and a love. I believe I'm a student and a teacher all the time at the same time. It was more about intellect. And even my experience in seminary was primarily about this intellectual understanding and I didn't, I didn't believe that was the best way. I still don't believe that's the best way. But if it's a matter of faith, it should be changing the entire person. 
And so that was always my approach when I taught as well. It was much more of a holistic approach to to teaching. I, I don't even always like to use the word teaching because I think it doesn't always have a positive spin. But for me, it was was very much about forming people's lives. Oh, I like that. Forming people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So tell us about the Emerging Life Project. I wrote the word emerge down on my tablet here from the beginning because of emerging out of the water, emerging out of the closet, emerging out of the priesthood, emerging, like emerging has been very much a part of, of my life. Um, feeling trapped, then emerging. And I mean, I also tie it back to the, the whole experience of butterflies. Most people probably know when a, a, a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, it totally dissipates. It totally loses the, the identity that it was as a caterpillar and comes out as a butterfly. And for me, that sense of for, forming people and transforming people is about exactly the same thing because that that's what I want for my own life. That's what I strive for in my own life is to be able to let go of the, the mindset, let go of the thinking, let go of the beliefs that hold me back from flying as that butterfly. And so the name, the Emerging Life Project is very much rooted in the reality of my own life and the way I see life for other people as well, that we tend to settle for being the caterpillar. We tend to settle for, well, this is just the way it is. And I, I mean, I really believe that, that you could change your circumstances. You could change by making different choices. And so the Emerging Life Project is very much about helping people through that process themselves, that you don't have to settle. You don't have to look at life through your pain. You don't have to look at life through your obstacles and blame and be a victim which is fed into us so many different in so many different ways, but you don't have to live that way. You can make the choice to live differently. And so uh, emerging life is helping people to emerge into that person, the person who's struggling, the person like myself who wants more out of life. You know, the, the, the parents in their midlife as their kids graduate high school and move on. And it's like, what well, we don't even know who we are anymore. Our identity is who this, has been our kids for so many years. It's helping people through that transition and not accepting that this is the way it is. You could now become a new version of yourself, a new creation, a new invention, however you want to describe it. As long as you're breathing, there's still possibility. If someone wants their life to emerge, right? If that's the project they want to undertake with you, what does that look like? Yeah, as far as say, they have to have a willingness to change. And, and of course, I've studied all this theology, but I, I and I still love this one line, St. Ignatius of Loyola, his thing always was, if you don't have the desire, pray for the desire to desire. And I, I've gone back to those words, words many times myself. If you're feeling that sense that you want more, if you feel like it's not enough in life, if you're having any of those experiences and feelings in your life right now, um, and you can't quite take that leap, that step, Pray for the desire to desire, because that the invitation is already there at that point. It's a matter of what are you going to do? What's the choice you're going to make um, in that moment? So yeah, certainly uh, reach out if you're feeling that way, if you have that, that sense in your life of wanting more. Yeah. Are you working as a coach with your clients or a confessor, or are you a, a consultant training or... Um, I mean, uh, labels are an awful thing in a way, 
but they are. we want to have our listeners have a as complete of an understanding as possible, right? Especially if uh, if they find that your story is compelling and they find you interesting and they're like, hey, I think I could learn something from this guy, right? So sure. how are you interacting with your clients? What form does that take? It depends on the client. It is primarily coaching that I do, but some people, I'll be honest with you, like I, I, I tried to move away from the whole faith element. Not that I move away from it in my own life. It's very important to who I am. Faith in the larger sense that we've spoken about. Uh, and yet it's often people who are struggling with their faith that reach out to me in one way or another. Uh, I don't always think it's a crisis of faith. I think it's often a crisis of identity. They don't quite know who they are. Uh, it's that first question that w- that we often ignore in life. And so it is primarily coaching, but I also, for some people anyway, it's also a sense of spiritual direction. If I know the person has some kind of faith background and believes that and, and continues to, to work with that themselves, I'm, I'm very flexible in bringing that into the conversation. I mean, I, I know that so well to begin with, and I think it's important for people, if you want to take a, a holistic and a whole approach to who you are, uh, and and so it, it's coaching, but it, at times is spiritual direction as well. I wouldn't. I I don't know if I'd ever use the word confessor because that's been attached to my previous life. But in many ways, there is an element of that when a person comes to me because they often come to me when they are struggling. And so part of that story is being vulnerable um, with who they are and being vulnerable to another person as to what's going on in their life. There's some sense of pain in their life that they're dealing with, loneliness, um, anger, whatever it may be. Uh, There is an element of confessing to it, but I I use coaching or spiritual direction primarily if people come uh, based on where they are at in their own journey. All right. I understand. For me, it's very hard to separate all those things anyway. I mean, I... yeah. I've done enough work on myself and continue to work on myself because I've had this conversation with some people. If I believe that I know where the lines are, I can't always tell you where the, I I couldn't sit here and tell you, well, here's the line. I know in my gut if I'm approaching a line with someone. And if I think you would be better served as a, with a, a therapist for something, I would have no hesitation telling you, I think you need to speak to a therapist about something like that. Because I'm, I'm I'm confident in who I am and confident in what I do. Sometimes you do need a professional, someone who's trained in that way to help you through something. And I wouldn't hesitate to tell someone, I think you should go this route at this moment. You can continue to work with me in one, one form or another, but that issue probably would better serve you if you spoke to a therapist. Yeah, exactly. And, and coaching is more of a forward-looking uh, process Correct. anyways. Um, Correct. And, uh, well, I, that co- doesn't mean I'm going to... And when I when I talk about pain, pain is often associated with past. Yeah. And I, there's always that element when you're first beginning of dealing with pain. It's often pain that makes you want to go get help in one way or another. Uh, and, and so there is often that pain that's keeping you from moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I, I do hope to grow it in the in the sense uh, in, into consulting as well. Because of my experience of, of working with institution, I, I know navigating institutions well because I've done it for so long. Also, corporation is an issue in corporations. The head, quote unquote head, becomes so disconnected from the body. And I would say the same thing about the church, that it forgets its purpose. It forgets its mission. And I have friends that do this kind of work as well to 
help people who lead companies to once again connect with the ground level of who they are, with the heart of who they are. Because it's very easy to, to elevate yourself to this headspace and forget about the heart. And the heart's really what's going to, to move you forward and, and keep you grounded. I love that. I think we've got a good feel for you at this point, and we certainly have listeners who might want to be in contact with you. So what's the best way for someone to find out more about what you offer or directly uh, contact you? Sure. Um, the best way is is usually through social media. You'll probably get a, a quickest answer, a quick answer from me if you go to social media. Okay. Facebook and Instagram, I use all the time at Marty Noki. It's Marty Noki at LinkedIn on Facebook and Instagram. I use the same name, Marty Noki. So you'll find me there. And Noki, N-O-C-C-H-I. Correct. correct. Yep. (laughs) Super. Well, listen, it is uh, almost time for our questions, but I did want to mention one thing, a little pot B for you, I guess, pat on the back. I love your writing. I was reading some of the uh, articles or the blogging that you had done, and you have quite a gift for that, I think. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, I well, I rarely talk about it because I've been focusing so much on um, the coaching aspect of my business. But I do, I have written for small businesses to help them connect with potential clients. Yeah. Um, so I have used my writing in that way. And my goal, I, I finally have enough writing for a book. I wrote about 40,000 words this year. And uh, my goal is to pull that together before the end of the year so I, I could finally get that book. And the book is primarily, it's written very similar to the way I write posts to, to make you think a little more deeply. Yes. But it's very much about how do you discern all these voices in your life and to find the authentic one. Interesting. I like that. Do you have a title yet? Working title? Um, I don't yet. So unknown. But it's coming. Well, we appreciate it. So we know how to reach you. LinkedIn and Facebook at Marty Noki. At, and Instagram. At, oh, and Instagram. Sorry. And on, yep. the, and on the Insta. Is the, on I, the, actually like in, I actually like Instagram the best. No kidding. All right. So that's good. <laughs> so you'll maybe you get a lot more younger people there. I'm, sure. Not sure, I'm not sure. I think it skews younger. Uh, that I don't know. Mm, I have to do some more research on that and figure that out. Okay. We have met Marty Noki today. We've learned a lot about his life and his journey. It sounds like uh, he's on the right path. Finally, I can hear it in his voice. Looking forward to having you touch base with Marty. But first, it's the question. Stand by, Marty. It's time to answer the questions. I double dare you. All right, it is time for the questions, and this is where we dig in a little deeper to find out who this Marty guy really is. Are you ready, Marty? I'm ready. All right, question number one. Who do people tell you that you look like? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know if people ever told me anything. <laughs> who do I look I don't even have an answer to that. No, nothing. No one's ever said, oh, you know, hey, are you so-and-so? Or you remind me you of. You remind yeah, me of. or I don't think I ever had that. You know, other than my own family, because we all look alike. Yeah. <laughs> do you look more <laughs> Do you look more like a sister or more like a brother? Or oh, who, do you, who do you look like? Uh, I noticed you had a five o'clock shadow on, on uh, one of your Instagram <laughs> posts. So. Oh, oh, yeah. Can I tell you about that? Because I, when I left priesthood and I spent a year living and working on an organic farm. Yeah. Afterward, it's kind of a sabbatical. Uh, I said, I'm not going to fully shave until I get a job. Well, then I, I just decided never to get a job, but I um, I started <laughs> my own business. So I, I, I never got rid of that either. <laughs> but if, if you knew my father, you would know that you would definitely know that I was his son. 
All right. So we'll say we'll take father as the uh, <laughs> now I have um, in my family, we have the Swanger nose. So um, the best photographs that I have go back to my grandfather, whose nose had quite a bump and was really pushed to the side. My, my dad's a little straighter. Right. And, uh, you know, with a double double bulb on, on the end. Mine's a little bit straighter. Still a lot of cartilage in there. And then I have a 28-year-old daughter who kind of had my frame, skinny, you know, it's all skinny. And and she has still, like, the remnants of the swanger nose, a little bump. So the grandkids, looks like the grandkids got uh, her husband's nose, I think. So I think that okay. I think that that's all done. But All right, you may have answered this already, but this is a little bit deeper question. So here we go. Question number two. What is the one main tool, attribute, or life hack a person can use to ensure that they're living a life that is authentic? What is one the tool. What is the one main tool, attribute, or life hack, or, or you may have something else that I you know didn't label, that uh, a person can use to ensure okay. that they're living a life that is authentic to them, obviously? Yeah, I don't, and I don't, think, I don't think I have answered it, but I, the very first thing that comes to mind when I hear that question mm-hmm. is the, the thing that kept driving me forward was um, finding silence in my life, and often through through nature, being outdoors, uh, because it was in the silence and outdoors, I could never run from myself. It was always there. Oh, now would that be the same as prayer or meditation, or do you see that as something different, or, or them as maybe three different things? Yeah, I, I mean, they can be interchangeable because I don't want to confuse prayer with prayers. Um, but prayer, I would associate with silence. Meditation, I would associate with silence. Breathing, okay. breath work, I would associate with silence. So yeah. those things, I, I think, very much keep you in tune. Prayers doesn't always do that. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's what I was looking for, too. I was hoping you'd come up with something like that that, was, <laughs> that really worked. And, and that's from your personal experience, you said, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I still do a lot of those things. Yeah. You know, for somebody like me who's, who likes to talk, <laughs> I guess I like to hear myself talk sometimes. Uh, and sometimes I'm like, I think through things by by speaking it. Um, sure. I do like silence. When I drive, I like a quiet. You know, yeah, me too. My friends always want the music on or or, yeah. or they're chatting or whatever, which, which I'm okay with. I love that as well. But yeah. I'm very content for it to be quiet. I'm alone with my thoughts. Especially yeah. if I'm on the highway. The other thing for me is I like, I do enjoy sitting out in my yard. I have some bird feeders out there. It's usually just just quiet. I don't have to worry about being attacked by a bear because we don't have any. But <laughs> do you know what I mean? But I mean, it's like yeah. we're, my lot is surrounded by trees and, br- and, and brush and shrubs and such. And um, so it's kind of <laughs> secluded and uh, the birds love it back there. So it's just quiet and I can just be with myself. So I love that. Yeah, even even when I, I drive to Baltimore still like once a month just to catch up with people. Yeah. And I could do that. That's about a three hour drive for me. I will typically do that in silence. No kidding. Yeah. And then when you get to your destination, have you come up with anything, any profound uh, thoughts or decisions or new questions, uh, new yes. questions or? Yeah, sometimes and I'll, I'll text myself those things so I don't lose them. Perfect. All right. Question number three, if you could have a conversation with a famous person, dead or alive, who would it be? And what would you talk about? Hmm. Dead or alive. Yeah. You know, the first person I, that comes to mind, I don't know where this comes from, but Mm -hmm. I thought, uh, Nelson Mandela. Oh, what would you talk about? 
his experience of being in prison right. and what that was like. Uh, oh. Because he comes out, he, he comes out uh, a changed person, and I think ideally that's the when people go to prison, that's what should happen. You should come out transformed. And so I would just be interested in in his experience of getting there, being there, and then coming out of there. Would you find that parallels with your own life? Is that why um, that's of interest? I'm always looking for parallels in my with my own life. I mean, that that's how you connect with people. I feel like, uh, based on what you were telling me, maybe it was sort of like you were in prison for all those years. And I've used that 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 uh, image many times. Yeah. All right. Question number four. I do offer uh, going boldly success coaching. Uh, may I ask you a coaching question? Sure. All right. So, Marty, now that you're on this new part of your journey, what is the most impossible or imposing? Not impossible. What's the most imposing obstacle that when overcome will make it easier for you to move forward? Uh, for me to overcome? Yes. Where do I begin? <laughs> there, is, there, is there one in particular that's the most imposing that maybe is uh, maybe uh, conquering it would uh, reveal the most opportunity? I often find myself, um, there is that element of control, but I often find myself, um, I, I, I hate to use the word because there's reference, trapped between success and failure. Like, how can I experience the fear of success and failure at the same time? But that's how it often feels for me. And I find that to be an obstacle at times. I find it paralyzing at times. So you feel trapped between in a state of fear trapped between the ideas of success and failure at times. Yeah. 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 And at the same time. Yeah. Wow. That's a heavy now, one. Bear in mind, yeah. Bear in mind. Yeah. I know. You know, couldn't pick a simple answer. <laughs> bear in mind, like when I work with someone to this sure. day and even when I taught, I always, I, I was just talking to someone the other day who, who found himself between new opportunity and wanting to go back to the to where he was comfortable. Yeah. And so I I find people are often between these two places. They're in between somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm I'm not indifferent. I kind of live with this paradox of success and failure, and uh, sometimes it can be paralyzing for me. Yeah. And the other part of it, uh, the the negative part is um, people in that state are making decisions based on their fear. And that's really not a great place to be. Nope. So since we're not since since we're not in a coaching session and uh, and neither are listeners, we'll leave it there. But it's definitely something for people to think about and consider. And hey, you know we have a lot of talents to help people, but uh, we're humans too, right? So we have Absolutely. things that we have things that we deal with, and you don't have to have experienced something to be able to help someone else with that particular Correct. issue, but. Sometimes there's value in having gone through it or dealing with it successfully, right? And that, I mean, that's why I still have a coach. That's why not still. I have a coach. I have a spiritual director. I mean, I still have these people that I rely on as well. Yeah, of course. To help me move forward. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people, if they're not familiar with this type of coaching, uh, they can just think of a sports analogy. Uh, the the greatest, the greatest yeah. of all times in any sports that's your favorite all have coaches. And yeah. sometimes those coaches have never actually played the game. I can think of a basketball, a very famous basketball coach who never actually played basketball, but he has like he was the greatest, the greatest uh, performers. And uh, and I actually heard him say that they were actually weren't the most talented, but they were the best performers and they were the hardest workers. I, I don't care who you are as a human being. You have blind spots. 
and you have things, you can never be fully objective with yourself. I don't care who you are. You just can't, none of us are capable of doing that because we don't, we can't see ourselves fully. We rely on other people to reflect back to us these blind spots, these uh, shadows within ourselves so that we can bring them into us more fully. Never try to do it alone. I mean, that would be my advice to anyone. You think you could do it alone because we're convinced in our society that I could do it alone. And I I just don't think that's that's being truthful with people. You need other people to help you recognize those things within yourself. I appreciate that. Yeah, I agree 100%. All right, listener, thank you very much for uh, tuning in to our podcast today. Uh, You can find Marty Noki, that's N-O-C-C-H-I, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and his favorite, Instagram. (laughs) All right, thanks, Marty. Thank you. That concludes another episode of Going Boldly. I hope you were entertained and you discovered at least one nugget of wisdom or advice that you can put into action immediately. Or maybe you received some inspiration from today's episode. And I'm certain you know at least one person who needs this podcast. Please share it with them. You might be the important link that will change their life for the better. Subscribing means you will not miss an episode. And it will make it easier for me to schedule guests because I can show them that the audience is growing. So please subscribe. It will benefit us all. Let me know how I can make this show even better. Leave a comment and send me a DM. I read everyone personally, and I do my best to respond to each and every one. As a thank you, I'll be awarding prizes. And to keep you on your toes, the winners will be randomly selected from names I find in the comments, shares, DMs, and from the list of subscribers. Prizes might be Going Boldly merch or products supplied by my guests, or just something random and fun. But you have to comment, share, DM, or subscribe to be eligible to win. A special thanks to Brenna Swanger at Waverly Manor Studios for our great theme music. And finally, thanks for listening. Go boldly, keep at it, and wash your hands.